First Samuel chapter eight. First Samuel chapter eight. And I will be referencing a, a few passages in the book of Exodus tonight, so you may want to hold that spot. And I will also be referencing uh, parts of our scripture reading in Jeremiah 17. So our study will be in First Samuel eight, but I will be going to Exodus a couple times and to Jeremiah 17 a couple times. But where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 8 is good times for Israel. I mean, when we started the book of 1 Samuel, it was not good times. Um, They were under Philistine oppression. Uh, Things were bad. It got worse under Eli. Uh, But of course, in chapter 7, we had that great victory under Samuel. And Israel has enjoyed God's favor now under Samuel's leadership. The nation's relationship with God is restored. Um, They were free from Philistine oppression. Uh, But as so often happens over time, people tend to forget how awful things were, (laughs) and they grow restless with their forward progress. This is now going to be compounded by the fact that Samuel is an old man, and there's no clear successor to his leadership. And so Israel grows tired of the current system, and they demand a change. Now, change can be good sometimes. I hate change. And uh, some of you like change. Some of you don't like change. Change can be good sometimes. But change is never good when the reason for change is in a misplaced hope, uh, when it's placed in something other than the Lord. So we're going to see that tonight as Israel demands a king. So chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, we begin in verse 1. And we start here with the situation in Samuel's old age. It says, And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. And they were judges in Beersheba. And his sons did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. So we start here in verse 1, and it says that it came to pass when Samuel was old. Samuel, at this point in the book, is about 60 years old. So, I mean, he's come a long way from the little guy, you know, that we met whose mom was bringing him new, new you know, outfits every year. Um, five years have passed since their victory over the Philistines, and Samuel has used the time wisely. Uh, he's opened a school of prophets that we'll meet later on in the book of 1 Samuel uh, to teach God's word to the people since the Levites were kind of a lost cause at this point. Um, in addition to this, Samuel was spreading out. He knew as he's getting older that he would not be able to do as much, and so he was spreading out his responsibilities, and he made two of his sons judges alongside of him to reach the regions in southern Israel. And so it mentions that the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abiah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Now, by the names that they gave him, Samuel and his wife gave to their sons, I mean, these are good names. Uh, Joel means uh, Jehovah is God. I still remember my oldest son's name is Joel. And uh, we brought him home from the hospital. And the very day we brought him home, Jehovah's Witnesses came to the door. And it was awesome because I'm holding my little baby boy, I mean, a little tiny thing, I'm holding my, in a little hand, and I'm holding him, and they come to the door, and, you know, and, and they're like, oh, how old is he? Oh, yeah, he just came home, what's his name? Joel, and they said, oh, that's a name from the Bible, and I said, yes, it means Jesus is God. <laughs> the conversation didn't go much longer after that. But that's what it means, you know, Jehovah is God. 
Jael, and uh, and uh, Joel is a a name that we find multiple times in the uh, Old Testament. Uh, of course, the prophet Joel is probably the most well known. There's another godly Joel. We always would tell my son Joel, "You're not named after this Joel. This is not the good Joel." Um, his brother's name was Abia or Abiah, and uh, that means my father is Jehovah. So these two names show that Samuel and his wife, they sought to establish uh, the Lord's leadership in their family. Jehovah's God. He's in charge. My father's Jehovah. He's our leader. He's our provider. He's our head. So they sought to establish God's lead, the, the Lord's leadership in their family and to instill the concept of God's kingship in the lives of their boys. Um, and so these guys were judges in Beersheba. Now, uh, Beersheba is the southernmost city in all of Israel, very far from Samuel's circuit of ministry that we learned he took last week. Uh, so the, he was expanding to try to reach as many people as possible, and his two sons were appointed to this. Now, what is a judge? Well, a judge is, is, is a leader who handles legal disputes. That's, that's what their job was. Uh, the Levites were there to handle uh, spiritual instructions. That's not what a judge does. But they were to handle legal disputes in the nation, to measure complaints or um, uh, cases brought to courts uh, and, and how they measured up with God's law. And, and judges had been a part of Israel's history right after they left Egypt. Soon after they left Egypt and Moses became overwhelmed with all of Israel's disputes. If you remember, Moses' father-in-law came for a visit uh, in Exodus chapter 18. And in Exodus 18, he saw everything Moses was doing by himself. And he tells Moses in, well, he says to him in verse 17 of Exodus 18, he goes, the thing you're doing is not good. This is not a good plan. You're going to wear yourself out. Verse 18, you shall surely wear, wear away both you and this people that is with you. I mean, you're going to wear yourself out and they're going to get frustrated with you because they've got to wait in line all day for you to give judgment. She says, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to perform it yourself alone. So hearken now unto my voice. I will give you counsel and God shall be with you. This is his advice. You be for the people to Godward. In other words, you go seek the Lord that you may bring the causes unto God. You go, you t- you go bring these, these really difficult issues to the Lord. And then when God gives you an answer, you shall teach them ordinances and laws and shall show them the way wherein they must walk and the work that they must do. Moreover, you shall provide out of all the people able men, capable men, such as fear God, men of truth who hate covetousness, and then place such over the people to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds and rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. Our own court system is, is mirrored after this technique where you've got local judges and then if the case is too hard or you, you, know, you don't think the verdict was correct, you can appeal to a higher judge and then of course you can go all the way to the Supreme Court, Moses being the Supreme Court in this case. And let them judge the people at all seasons. And then it shall be that every great matter, that's what they shall bring unto you. But every small matter, let them judge. That way it will be easier for yourself and then they shall bear the burden with you. And so this was his advice. And so Moses hearkened, uh, verse 24, to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose capable men out of all Israel, made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. And they judged the people at all seasons. The hard causes they brought to Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves. So this has been a part of Israel's culture and history all the way from the beginning of their being a nation coming out of Egypt. Now, 
God, after Moses set this up, God gave instructions on legal matters to these judges in Exodus chapters 21 through 23. I'm not going to read them all. But I do want to share the ending with you in Exodus 23, verses 6 through 9. This is what it, all of God's instruction for these judges culminated in. In Exodus 23, verses 6 through 9. He says to them, these are the warnings he gives to them. In verse 6 of Exodus 23, you shall not rest the judgment of the poor, of your poor, in his cause. Keep you yourself far from a false matter, and the innocent and the righteous do not slay, for I will not justify the wicked. You might, but I won't. And you shall take no bribe, for the bribe blinds the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, a foreigner, someone who's not an Israeli. For you know the heart of a stranger, seeing that you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know what it was like to live in a foreign land. So God gives these warnings. Don't have a double standard for the rich and for the for rich people and the poor people. In other words, stick to God's standard no matter what part of the socioeconomic strata they're part of. Secondly, don't listen to false testimony. Thirdly, don't pronounce a sentence of death if there's any doubt of guilt. Fourthly, don't take a bribe. And fifthly, don't treat a foreigner differently than a national. Stick to God's standards. Those are really good principles to lead by if you are, you know, in in, in authority over legal matters. But sadly, as we turn back to 1 Samuel 8, Samuel's sons did not heed that warning. They did not live by these rules. Verse 3 says, and his sons did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after lucre, and they took bribes, and they perverted judgment. Now, that phrase, turned aside after these things, it's an interesting thing because it, it, it gives you the impression that they just kind of left the path, but that's not what that means. The word turned aside, or the phrase turned aside, it means to extend the path, to spread out the path, to make it wider. In other words, Samuel had lived on a narrow path, one that conformed to God's standard. His sons didn't go on a completely opposite or different path. They just widened the path, making it into one that ignored God's warnings for judges. And why did they do that? It tells us, and it's a good old King James word, because of lucre. What is lucre? I don't know, but it doesn't sound good. Lucre is money gained through immoral means. They saw this as an opportunity to make, make a bunch of cash. And so they did this by taking bribes that influenced their legal decisions. They took bribes and they perverted judgment or justice. They, the word they're perverted is the same word as turned aside. They extended or spread out how the law works rather than give justice. They twisted and they bent God's laws to give guilty people wiggle room and innocent people greater chances to be condemned. Now, there's a reason that Jesus called following him a narrow path, a straight path, because the broad path leads to destruction. The wide path leads to destruction. So making the narrow path less narrow to suit ourselves doesn't lead to the same destination as the narrow path. So in essence, it is not really the same path, even though you can convince yourself, I'm on the same path. In addition to this, broadening the narrow path undermines the fact that God knows what's best. 
that he knows what is true and he knows what we need. He knows how to keep society the best. And if we're going to base our lives on only some of the things Jesus said, it begs the question of why we'd base our lives on anything Jesus said. You know, if if someone says, well, I like what Jesus said here, but I don't like it here. Well, why is he authority on one thing, but an absolute flub on another thing? It begs the question of why follow anything Jesus said? So, you know, oftentimes, you know, people will say, well, you know, you're, you just stick to the Bible, Pastor. Well, you're just, everything the Bible says, there's no wiggle room. Yes, you're right. Because I believe in a loving, wonderful God who is more intelligent than I am and you are and has our best interest in mind and laid out boundaries that are best for us. So, yes, you're correct. <laughs> I believe all of it. Because I really don't see the sense in only following some of it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He is the narrow path. He is the only way. He is the truth. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But he's also our loving Savior who never makes a mistake. So if we're going to follow him, our standard must be everything he said, with no bending, twisting, or widening. Now, Samuel's sons, they weren't obviously off the right path like Eli's sons. Their actions were more discreet, therefore more deceptive, but the result was the same. The effect on the people was the same. They did not like it. And so in verse 4, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together, and they came to Samuel unto Ramah. And they said unto him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. So now make us a king to judge us like all the nations." Now, they had no idea that Samuel would be around for another 30 years. That was very rare for someone to live to the age of 90 back then. So the nation, they thought, this is, this is the end of the line for you. We love you, and we, we love your leadership, but you're not going to last forever. The nation wanted change, and they demanded he install it while he was still alive. Now, in Israel asking for a king to judge them or rule over them, They had never made that demand before when a judge got older. Never. I mean, they had had numerous judges up to this point, 350 years of judges. They had never made this demand. God was their king. So even though the Lord picked different leaders to govern the people, there was always a continuity of his leadership, right? So they had never phrased it like this before. They'd never seen it that way before. But now they do. They didn't see that, well, God has continuity. They thought, we want some more visible and obvious stability. What they focused on was the fact that for 350 years, they'd gone through this cycle of, these cycles of, well, judge dies, and then the nation falls apart. And so, even though God always raised up a new judge, they didn't like not knowing that. They did not like not knowing who that would be. And they didn't like the possibility of things falling apart if, if they strayed. See, They wanted an arrangement that lasted beyond the death of a human leader, a monarchy, a line of kings. Now, did they get this ingenious idea of a more stable system from the Lord? No. (laughs) They said, we want to be like the other nations. Now, I do need to point out that while Israel shouldn't have made this demand under these circumstances, He was not necessarily wrong to ask God for a king. God had promised from the very beginning of his promise to Abraham to to give them kings. In Genesis 17, 6, 
You know, I think he tells Abraham that kings shall come from you. And then I think he repeats it later on uh, to Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Genesis 17, 6, the Lord says, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come out of you. And then he repeats it later in the chapter to, to Abraham and Sarah. So that was not necessarily wrong to ask God for a king. Their wrong lay in the reasons they wanted a king. You know, other nations... There is their mindset. Other nations have the, the stability of unbroken lines of leadership to keep the nation moving forward at all times, Samuel. We need that too. And while that statement may be impassioned, it is both woefully optimistic and willfully ignorant. Nations with kings had plenty of instability. Even today in our world, transfer of power in some countries is brutal, taking and leaving massive scars upon the people they claim to care for. It was far worse back then. Transfers of power were almost always bloodbaths. But the Israeli elders are blind to that because they latched onto a problem that wasn't really the problem. You see, the source of their instability wasn't that they didn't have a king. The source of their instability was that they wouldn't follow the king they already had. It was never because of the lack of leadership. It was always because of the lack of obedience. And when people incorrectly pinpoint a problem, they will never arrive at a correct solution. And so Samuel, when he hears their demand for a king, he is really upset. Verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. The word there, displeased, is actually three words in the Hebrew, and it means evil in the eye. It's, It's when they said it, it was like, it was like somebody had just, you know, squirted lemon in his eye or something. You know, it was just, how could you suggest such a thing to me? You know, you might as well have kicked me in the shins. You might as well spit upon me. Why, how could you suggest such a horrible thing? The idea of this displeased, it's, it's when something is so evil in your, in, in, in your hearing and in your sight that it leaves you distressed, disturbed, and miserable. You know, one of the, these three words comes from a root that means that which is wrong, that which is bad. Samuel's thinking, things are going so well for the nation. And while you might be right about my my sons, this is not the right path to take. Samuel believes with all his heart that this demand will send the nation in the wrong direction. And he knows he's not going to be around this time to help them find the way back. He's old. And so, it's a Samuel prayed unto the Lord. Now, I don't know for sure, but my guess is that Samuel probably expected God to say, tell them no, I'm their king, duh. For how could God condone something that was evil? But I do believe Samuel made a mistake. You see, Israel didn't need him to keep them on the right path. After he was gone, they'd still have the Lord. And the Lord had a plan that overruled Israel's plan. So in verse 7, I think Samuel gets a bit of an unexpected answer because the Lord pauses after he gives it. The Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto you, colon, which means God paused to let his answer sink in. Tell them they can have their king. Now, have you ever prayed and, and you know, you start reading the word and all of a sudden you, you're like, you see the answer of God and you're like, that's not what I expected. I remember me and Bev, we don't always see eye to eye, you know, um, 
we are very strong-willed individuals. We're very stubborn. And, and we see things our way, and we can knock heads. You know, I know that surprises you. <laughs> I'm such a peaceful, agreeable personality. And we were having a discussion about how we we're going to educate our kids, you know, whether we we're going to homeschool in public school, whatever, you know. And I got saved in public school. Public school was my training ground for sharing my faith. You know, I, I got saved and I learned how to, how to live a separate life. I learned how to share the gospel. Uh, and so I was like, you know, my, my six year old is going into kindergarten to be a light for Jesus. And of course, my, you know, very intelligent wife thought, that may not be the best decision to throw our five-year-old to the wolves. Maybe we might want to do something different. And she had a heart that was in a different direction for that. And man, we could not, you know, come to, to, to agreement where we were both had the same heart. And I remember I used to go for a walk back then when I'd have my prayer time and my devotion. And I went for a walk and, you know, I'm praying. And you know, I've been praying about this because I'm like, you know, we got to get in line. We got to be on the same page. We can't do anything until we're on the same page. You know, it's real important when you're married. A little bit of advice there. Don't go, go be a, you know, lone ranger. You, you gave up that right when you said I do to be a lone ranger. So, you know, I'm walking. I'm, Lord, what do I do? What do I do? And I'm in Isaiah of all places. I don't even remember the text. But, and, I, and I'm reading and I'm praying about this very thing. And I'm reading and the Lord's just like, we want you, to, I want you to do this. And it was totally opposite of what I thought the Lord would tell me. I remember staring at that verse and just, really, Lord? I was that off, wasn't I? And, and, you know, that's probably what it was like for Samuel. Tell them they can have their king. Lord, I, I've been hearing your voice for 60 years. I think I've finally not heard your voice correctly. The Lord lets it sink in. This had to have shocked Daniel. But I think the reason that God gave his answer time to sink in is because Daniel, um, Daniel uh, Samuel had made another mistake, one I think that had wounded him deeply. Samuel had made this about him. See, the Lord, after he lets it sink in, the answer, he says, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. Listen, no matter how much your kids might mess up at times, you love your kids, right? I love my kids. You know, I... I you know, I, I know their strengths, I see their weaknesses, I see, you know, things that are, are solid, and I see things that are challenges for them, and, you know, I, I, you, you pray for them, you, you teach them, you know, you try to encourage them, you try to lead them, you try to, you know, influence them, and all that kind of stuff, and, and you know, even when maybe they might not be fully stepping up to the plate in a way you'd like, you're still proud of the areas where they do, right? You love them, they're your kids, and, and these are still Samuel's sons, even though they're grown men now. It had to hurt and he probably took it as a personal failure. And so the Lord says, you know, they have not rejected you. And the word rejected means to despise, to treat as worthless, to be, you know, utterly displeased with. And it's like the Lord says, Samuel, the people love you. They know you raised your boys better than this. They, they know you don't have anything to do with their sins. This isn't about you. It's not even about your sons. It's about the same thing it's been about for the last 350 years. Their problem is with me, for that they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. It's not that they don't have a king, Samuel. It's that they don't like my rule. They still want me around, 
But they want a different arrangement for when they go their own way, one in which a king might be a little bit more flexible in dealing with their sin than I am. And I know you can't see that, Samuel, but I'm the one who sees the heart. So while this might not look as awful as the idolatry in Israel's past, the truth is this is still the problem that's been in their hearts since they left Egypt. Verse 8, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto you. Listen, the Lord says, whether it was the complaining in the desert, whether it was the golden calf, or whether it was doubting my promises to defeat the Canaanites, or whether it was a refusal to drive out the Canaanites, from the desert to the conquest of the promised land, Israel has always tried to widen my standards. They have not forsaken you, they've forsaken me. The word they're forsaken, it means to leave a former association. You know, it's interesting, from the very beginning, Moses explained the relationship that they would have with the Lord. He'll be your God, you'll be his people. He will bless you, watch over you, protect you, you will keep his covenant, his commandments. And the people came out and they said, we're all in on that. We love this idea. It's a great idea. We need a God, and, 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 and you know, if he wants us to be his people and bless us, then, then we'll do it. We're all in. Whatever he says to us, we'll do it. And over time, Israel began to kind of buck at that agreement, buck at that relationship to pull further and further away. And, you know, whenever we add something outside of God's standard to our lives, we've made a decision to leave our closeness with the Lord too. And because the Lord loves you and me immensely and he knows what's best for me and for you and he wants to be close to me and to you, he'll never be okay with me expanding my life to include things that are outside his standard. That will never be something that he'll go, oh, well, it's just, you know, it's just a little pornography or oh, well, it's just a little anger problem or oh, well, it's just a little theft from work. He'll never be okay with that. So verse 9, he says, now therefore, hearken unto their voice. Because this isn't about you, Samuel, because this is about something I knew was coming and I've planned for it. So hearken unto their voice. God repeats his answer again because now Samuel knows the reality of the situation. Now that he knows that, he'll be able to carry out the last two parts of God's answer, which is this, how be it? How be it? Protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. Now, I want to pause for just a moment here. Samuel's initial reaction was so negative, right? I mean, he was displeased. He was disheartened, distressed, troubled at what they had said, so much so that he went to the Lord. And imagine if he had reacted in that moment, like if they said, we want a king. And, and what if Samuel said, y'all crazy? Like, what's wrong with you? Why would you even suggest such a stupid thing? But I know there's probably times you felt that way when someone you love or someone you care about or brother and sister in the Lord, that they've suggested something to you that you think is off the wall. This is why prayer is so important before we respond to something we don't agree with. Because even if you're right, you might be misreading what's really going on. See, only the Lord knows our heart. And while he won't reveal someone's heart to us, he will lead us to a course of action that will correctly minister to someone's heart. 
And so it's so important that we seek the Lord in prayer like Samuel did so he can get the shocker he got so he can respond correctly. And he can say to them, listen, the Lord says, if you really want a king, you can have one, but he warns you this is what that will be like. See, the Lord says, I want to give them an opportunity to change their minds. So protest solemnly. The word protest, it means to warn of a future happening that is unfavorable. This will not be an upgrade. Warn them, this will be a downgrade, okay? Warn them of that, and then secondly, show them, explain to them what the manner, the normal custom, the normal practice of a king that shall reign over them will be. See, they have this pie-in-the-sky concept of a king, Samuel, so tell them the truth. So verse 10, Samuel brings God's warning to the people. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the manner of the king that's reign over you. This is what it's like to have a king. He says, he will take your sons and he will appoint them for himself, for his chariots and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties. He'll set them to, to ear his ground, in other words, to, to till his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and the instruments of his chariot. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. In other words, a king will exercise authority over your loved ones, a greater authority than you will have. The phrase appoint for himself, it means he will put them in the places he wants and you can't do nothing about it. Do you understand? That's a normal practice of a king. I mean, do you remember when David was brought in to soothe Saul's insanity with his music? Imagine your hard-earned money paying for piano lessons for that. You know? Hi, I'd like you to lullaby our insane president. You know? A king, of course, back then, not a, not a president, but ruler. I'll have you lullaby him to sleep and hope he doesn't chuck any spirits at you while you're singing. How would you like that career foisted upon your child? You know, God made demands upon the parents in Israel, upon families in Israel, but it was never for his own selfish desires, never because he was in sin, never because he was broken and sane and didn't, things weren't working right. God is a perfect king. And Samuel warns him, you'll have no same guarantee from a human king. Well, not only will a king exercise authority over your loved ones, he will exercise authority over your property, verse 14. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your oliveyards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He's going to take your men's servants and your maid servants and the best of your young men, your donkeys. He's going to put them to work. He will take the tenth of your sheep and you shall be his servants. I remember the first time I heard the phrase eminent domain. I didn't, I'd never heard it before. It came to my ear because a friend of mine's parents had their home and business taken from them under the ruling of eminent domain. They were compensated, of course, but how does even a fair price compensate you for the life you've built? But that's what government does. That's what rulers do. You're at their mercy, and there's no other way around it. A king wouldn't need to compensate back then, and seldom did they back then. The entire land was considered his, and you used it at his pleasure. If he decided you using it didn't please him anymore, he could do whatever he wanted. It didn't belong to you. 
even if you'd purchased it. Now, the same, of course, is true of the Lord. I mean, I don't own anything I have. I, own, I have, possess everything I have at the Lord's pleasure, right? But our Heavenly Father is more than fair, right? He is also good. He is gracious, and He loves to lavish blessings upon us. Samuel says, you'll have no same guarantee from a human king, elders of Israel, if they are wicked or become compromised or even if they're just misinformed, you might lose everything. And then how will you feel about a king? You know, remember, I, I'm trying to remember, I get, I get the guy that Ahab killed confused with uh, Abigail's husband. Abigail's husband, I think, was Nabal. I don't remember the name of the guy who Ahab, he, Ahab, one day Jezebel comes in. We, you know, we talked about her a little bit this morning, super winner. Jezebel comes in and Ahab's pouting, pouting on his bed. She goes, what's wrong, honey? You know, there's a guy who owns a vineyard out there and I want it and he won't give it to me. Jezebel says, you're the king. Why don't you just take it? Who cares what he thinks? And Ahab goes, aha. And he killed him. I think it's Nabioth, I think was his name took his field. How will you feel then about a king, Israel? Verse 18. And you shall cry out in that day because of your king, which you shall have chosen you. But the Lord will not hear you in that day. Now, this does not mean that God wouldn't hear their cries for deliverance from a king's evil behavior. God did that on many occasions when the people cried out because they had an evil king and, and the Lord answered that. That's not what the Lord's saying here. What the Lord is saying is you can cry out all you want to get rid of the monarchy, to go back to judges or go back to me being your king. I will not reverse this decision if you go through with it. That's what the Lord's saying here. There will come Times when Israel would say, you know what, Lord, we were wrong. We should have been content with you as our king, Lord. Take the monarchy away. And God warns them up front, I will not say yes to that prayer. And he never did. He never did. Now, Israel's first king was Saul, and he was not an awful king as far as national policies go. I mean, he definitely had his personal flaws. But as far as national policy went, the nation was pretty happy. David was a good king to the people. They loved him. But both Saul and David were faulty. Both committed atrocities that negatively affected the people. We don't have any written record of them crying out to God saying, oh, Lord, we, we blew it here. We shouldn't have asked for a king. But we do have a record of them doing it in Solomon's, after Solomon's reign. Look at Second Chronicles with me, chapter 10. So this is only about 100 years, maybe a little bit more than 100 years after God warns them of this. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 10, the context is Solomon is dead. And what do you do in a monarchy? You pass it on to your son, right? And so just as Solomon took over after David, Rehoboam would take over after Solomon. But the people were like, ah, we don't like this monarchy thing anymore. And so in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for to Shechem were all Israel come to make him king. That's how you did it. When Solomon died, you go to Shechem to crown the next king. 
And it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was in Egypt because he had fled there from the presence of Solomon the king, when he heard that Solomon uh, had died and, and, and Rehoboam was going to be crowned king, well, Jeroboam came back home out of Egypt. And they sent and called for him. Who sent? The people of Israel. Because the reason Jeroboam was in Egypt is because he had complained about Solomon's poor kingmanship, the way he had abused the people and mistreated them, used them, that he had, his life was in danger. And so they sent and called him. So Jeroboam and all Israel came and they spoke to Rehoboam saying, your father made our yoke grievous. He, he made our lives miserable. Now, therefore, ease thou somewhat the grievous servitude of your father and his heavy yoke that he put upon us. Ease up on us, man. Change how you're, you're looking at kingship and we will serve you. If, if that's the case, then we can go on with this whole monarchy thing. But if not, we're not good with that. We're not gonna crown you king. Now, the way that story ends, of course, is Rehoboam says, you think my dad was hard? <laughs> and what happens? Ten tribes break away. We are only okay with this continuing this king thing if you agree to change the way your father Solomon treated us. And when Rehoboam refused, ten tribes rebelled. But God didn't let them go back to a, a judges-led society. He made them pick their own king. So the Lord, he warned them. Now, why did God hold them to this? Because wanting to change from judges to a king or vice versa, it revealed a deeper problem, misplaced hope in a human being rather than the Almighty. Whether, well, let's look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17. There's a section there where the Lord dealing with Judah's sins through the prophet Jeremiah, he says something very heavy. In Jeremiah 17, verse 5, it says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusts in man and makes flesh his arm. Arm is always a, a symbol of strength. It makes flesh, you know, human beings his strength and whose heart departs from the Lord. Why will he be cursed? For he's going to be like the heath in the desert. The word there for heath, it means like a shrub in the desert. Now, when you, if you're in the desert, okay, and you see a shrub, is it something you look out and you go, well, that, man, that thing just looks like it's flourishing. No, of course not. It looks like this lonely little shrub all by itself, withering and about to die, you know? Now, obviously, shrubs are made for the desert, but, you know, if I was lining up, if I was a tree and I was lining up for an assignment, it would not be desert shrub. He shall be like that shrub in the desert. He won't even see it when good comes, you know, because it's always desert. He won't even see it when good comes. So even when good comes, he'll miss out. But he shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land, and not inhabit it. This has been humanity's problem from the start. Back in Genesis chapter 4, right after the fall of man, Eve gives birth to a son. And what's his name? This glorious, beautiful boy. Cain, right? 
What does Cain mean? I have gotten the man from the Lord. What does that mean? Why did she call him that? Because God had made her a promise when she fell. She said, your seed will crush that serpent's head and will rescue humanity from everything you guys have done. Well, she had Cain, and she's going, that's it. He's the Savior. He is my boy. He's going to rescue humanity. He's going to bring us back into the garden. He's the solution. He's the answer. He's the wonder boy. Talk about disappointment. This has been humanity's problem from the start. We put our hope in men. See, whether it was Eve's trust in Cain or it was Abraham's trust in his plan for Sarah to pose as his sister, or Jacob's lying and conniving to get ahead, or Israel's idols, or Israel's desire for a king, or Israel's later trust in other nations, which is what Jeremiah is talking about here. All of those are misplaced hopes. And these misplaced hopes reveal a heart that isn't yet content with placing all my hope in the goodness of God. A hope that trusts both his way and his timing. You know, many commentators I read saw chapter 8 of 1 Samuel as a condemnation of earthly rulers. They're just bad. They do this, 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 and this. But it's not. It's a condemnation of the wrong mindset of a people toward their rulers. And as such, also a condemnation of the wrong mindset toward the Lord. You know, we have an amazing privilege here in the United States, our country. We get to vote for our rulers, right? An amazing privilege. We, not just that, we also get to choose what church we go to, what pastor we'll sit under, right? I mean, if you might leave tonight and just go, I'm done. <laughs> you know, you, you have that right here, you know? I mean, if you're, if you're living in a place where persecution is and, and the pastor gets up to teach and, you know, all eight of you who are in hiding are listening to him, it's not like you go, oh, forget this, I don't like this pastor. He's got a whiny voice. I'm going down the street. You don't have that freedom. You do here. We have incredible privileges and freedoms in our country. You know, let's not squander that. You know, I encourage you as the election's coming up to be informed and to vote. But, but, our hopes, whether it's for a a prosperous, righteous nation or just a prosperous, righteous life for our family, our hopes can never be placed in those individuals or those organizations. If Whoever the next president may be can throw you off spiritually. Your problem isn't who the next president is. If our church and any of its failures can throw you off your life spiritually, your problem isn't with your church. Because when I place my hope in an individual or an organization here on earth, it reveals something heartbreaking. It reveals that I'm not content with the Lord being my king, that I'm not okay with his choices, that I'm not content with him watching out for me day by day, that I'll only be content, in my mind, with something more tangible and more stable than that. And that hope will always be disappointed, even if you get what you want. 
And that's what Samuel's trying to tell them. I can give you a king. God can even give you a good king. But if that's where you're looking to for your hope, for your happiness, for your stability, you're going to be vastly disappointed. Sadly, they do not listen to Samuel's warning from the Lord. Verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, nay. Nay. The word refused, it means to resist and then not consent. Nay means we will not. As soon as Samuel started explaining the truth about a king, they hardened their hearts. They began to resist, and then they said, no, we will not be dissuaded. We will not listen to you. We will not continue as we are but we will have a king over us, they said. This will happen, is what that literally says. A king is going to happen, Samuel, with or without your help. We'd like it with your help. Now, how did they argue that a king would be an improvement upon the Lord? Verse 20. We will have a king over us that we may be like all the nations. And how is that? Three things. That our king may judge us, number one. He'd go out before us, number two. And number three, fight our battles. In other words, he will give us stable authority, judgment. He will give us stable leadership, go out before us. And he will give us stable organization of military. He will fight our battles. Now, if I was Samuel, I'd have been like, wait a second. God provides perfect authority. He provides perfect leadership. And he provides perfect military might. How can you go and improve upon those three things? But see, here's the difference. If they had a king, they, they, they say, well, we could visibly see that. If God's ju- just our king, well, then we have to trust him for those things. And they didn't like trusting God for those things when a need arose. They wanted a system in place that put all their ducks in a row so nothing bad could happen to them even if they blew it, even if they went astray. And I don't know if you've ever considered this, but that's a lot to put on a human being. It's something no human being can provide. Something only the Lord can. And the Lord, He doesn't ignore it when we blow it. He calls us to repentance. He calls us to a higher place. So, I know things have been ramping up and it seems like I can't go anywhere, but can't, can't have anything. I can't watch YouTube. I can't, can't go on my Facebook page. I can't do anything. Can't turn on the radio without 17 political ads. In this election, please pray. Please educate yourself. And please vote. But I urge you, please, don't get your hopes up or let your hopes be dashed by the results. Decide to have a heart that puts all of its hope in the Lord, no matter what happens. Now, Samuel did what God told him to do, but the people wouldn't listen. And so, he returns to the Lord with their answer. Verse 21, and Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, hearken to their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, go you every man unto his city. God says, give them what they want. And you know what? That can sometimes be the worst form of discipline from God, to give you what you want. And yet, God still calls the shots. 
He says, go home. Go home. I'll get back to you. <laughs> God makes it clear He's still the one who calls the shots. He'll decide who their king will be, not them. And so while Israel still gets what they want, they're going to have to wait because God's going to do it His way. Now, as we close this off tonight, Israel ignored God's warnings and they plunged headlong into misplaced hopes. So my, my question to you tonight is, are you ignoring God's warnings or are you listening? Is your hope set in the right place? Because here's God's promise if our hope is set in the right place. Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. And these are two of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Because it's our promise. If our hope is in the Lord, no matter what's going on around us, it could be literal hell going on around us. But even if that's the case, this promise is for us if our hope is in the Lord. Jeremiah 17, 7. Blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreads out her roots by the river and shall not see when the heat comes. The word see here refers to being anxious. In other words, here's this, you know, cursed is a man of trust in man. He's going to be like the shrub out in the desert. Even when good comes, he won't notice it because he's all out in the desert. On the other hand, the person who's trusting in the Lord, you're like a flourishing tree. And even when hard times come, you're not going to be anxious. But her leaf will be green. You shall not be careful, anxious, in the year of drought. And here's the good the cool kicker here, and neither shall you cease from yielding fruit. Guys, whatever happens in our nation, in your family, your job, the church, whatever happens, we can always be fruit-bearing Christians. Always. Always. Because Jesus hasn't moved at all. That's why Paul could say we are more than conquerors through him who loved us doesn't matter. So, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In everything you do, acknowledge him. Bring him into account. And he'll continue to direct your path and you can bear fruit. Amen? Let's all stand. Oh, Lord Jesus. I cannot speak for anyone else here, but I know I am easily distracted. I'm easily caught up in things that don't need to, I don't need to be anxious for. And so, Lord, we're, we're so grateful that we have this promise of a blessing if we'll be a man or a woman who will trust in you, whose hope will be you. What a great thing that no matter what's going on around us, we can flourish, we can bear fruit, we can make disciples, we can knock down hell gates, we can still shine for you, live for you. The joy of the Lord is our strength. All of these things, all of these promises are still ours, even if it's scorched earth all around us. Thank you for that promise, Lord. We look to you as our hope, our only hope, 
and we rest in you. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.